if we're not eating, you know, anywhere from three to sometimes six, eight, nine, seven times, you know, what else could you do with all that time that you're not acquiring, preparing, and eating food? So many different things that it will correct hormone signaling, communication, all these things. It just needs those building blocks. Like, please just give me these things that I need that I can't synthesize on my own. And then I will take them and, you know, we will just hum along so smoothly and so well. And most people and myself for so many years never got to experience just what great natural health is because I had taken my body so far from homeostasis. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body and Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Vanessa Spina. Vanessa runs the website ketogenicgirl.com. She's an author, a speaker, and a podcaster about eating low-carb and losing weight. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's great to get to see you again. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 true. Yeah, like uh, I'm glad to see you as well. And uh, we met actually like a year ago at the Biohacker Summit in Helsinki, and uh, yeah, you were giving a speech there about uh, measuring uh, blood ketones. Uh, what have you been up to, you know, since that time? That was such a cool event. I mean, I had such a, a really neat. I, it blew my mind. It blew my expectations. Really, it was there were so many incredible people there. But uh, it was great to meet people like yourself. And that was the start of my, like, quote unquote, speaking tour that I did last year. So I traveled all throughout the US promoting my book. And that was the first one that I did. And it was really cool to, like, kick it off with the Biohacker Summit, get to meet so many of the community that you guys have, which is incredible. And then since then, I did about six months of travel promoting the book and I've just been doing lots of speaking and working and I've gone back to school as well to study biochemistry. So I'm doing that full time and it's mm. very hectic right now. Um, and I started the podcast and I realized this morning it's been almost a year. I'm at almost 52 episodes and I was thinking how cool it is, you know, how I wanted to start one for a while. I was putting it off. I finally just, did it and now it's been a year and it's so cool how that can happen yeah that's that is so true as well and uh, uh that time tends to fly by if you're doing uh, the things you love and uh, especially like um having getting the opportunities to you know travel the world and at the same time you know sharing your message with other people and uh, yeah like what made you uh, want to write a book about keto what what made you like even start the diet maybe we can go into like the backstory a little bit as well yeah i mean um so to write the book i basically i love flow activities and flow experiences and getting into a zone state is a huge thing for me it's a huge priority for me and i've identified what some of those activities are for myself so for myself i know it's reading writing and really good conversation and for some people it's playing an instrument musical instrument listening to music engaging in a sport sometimes in sports i'll get into that too if i'm in a really good tennis game i just love the science of flow and so when the opportunity 
came about when the publishers approached me to write the book, I was like, this is going to be an amazing flow activity for me. And it was because I could just go and sit down and write everything that was flowing through me. And, you know, in those flow experiences, flow states, and I'm sure you've studied this quite a bit yourself, but flow states are characterized by a few different things. One of them is absence of all thought. Like you're so completely engaged in the moment that you don't have any other thoughts. And I get that when I'm speaking, doing presentations, when I'm writing, when I'm doing these kinds of activities. So I was really excited about that. And to just get to take all of this inspiration, all of this stuff that I've been studying and putting it out there in one concise place. So I was really excited about getting to do that with the book and just sharing knowledge that I had accumulated, you know, because a lot of people think of it, um, Keto Essentials right here, a lot of people think of it as mostly as a cookbook, uh, but the publishers really wanted me to do a cookbook. I wanted to write a guide on keto and we sort of compromised. So it has both um, of that. And yeah, that, I guess that made me want to write it and sh what made me want to write it and share it is just enabling more people to access that information because now there's so many incredible resources about keto and low carb. But when I was started out doing it, there wasn't a lot out there. Um, there was, there weren't a lot of podcasts. There weren't a lot of books. I was going on these obscure online bodybuilding forums and, you know, finding information in really odd places. And so I wanted there to be, to contribute to the access for people because part of my mission and personal vision is democracy, helping to democratize health so that more people can access good health and it isn't just a luxury for certain people. So that's what made want to write the book um to answer that question i think yeah yeah it is true that uh almost the the first kind of pieces of information about keto online have been been on these like fitness forums or bodybuilders who are tr trying to <laughs> lose some body fat and such but yeah like uh at the, after a few years or over the course of the past few years then uh, it's become really popular and I, and I really like what you said about the flow flow aspect and uh, I myself also f experience it throughout the day when I'm whenever I'm doing like writing or editing videos or whatever it may be and it's really one of those unique experiences and uh, it's uh, like a different state of mind where you are like experiencing no distractions and you're really focused on what you're doing and I, I would also like to believe that keto kind of helps me to experience flow more often because the brain is very satiated and it's like really uh, focused without having to you know suffer from any any brain fog or energy crashes or anything like that. so like keto is a really good diet for any writers wanting to improve their cognitive functioning as well so <laughs> that's such a cool way to look at it i didn't think about it as like being a flow supporting activity or a lifestyle that you could have you know more expression of mitochondria in your body and your brain tissue and it has this calming effect too and to get into a flow state you have about five or six different factors that you need to have in place and one of them is relaxation mm. so that probably helps you to get in that flow state for sure that's a really good point yeah like uh 
the, the keto diet tends to be more like GABA dominant. So uh, the brain is like less excited and uh, more calming. So probably <laughs> some, some good tips for any artists or uh, professional athletes wanting to go into the zone more often. Yes, it's, it's so funny because I'm studying in my biochemistry textbook. Uh, there's a section they have on ketones and this is the latest edition. And they're talking about how ketogenic diets have been used to help treat epilepsy. And they're saying the mechanism behind this, we don't really know yet. And I was like, but we do know it. <laughs> um, a lot of it, we don't know. I mean, all the ins and outs of it, but a lot of it is exactly what you're saying is it has this GABA dominant, it, it has this anti-excitatory effect on our neurotransmitters. It gets us into that more relaxed state. And I think whether you're at a flow activity or not, it's great to be in that more relaxed state just in life in general. And one of the reasons I prioritize flow activities is because they are the best source of happiness for me and fulfillment. And many people think, well, the best ways to be happy are to do the things I love, like hanging out with friends, going out and drinking or shopping or doing these different activities when really, uh, or even a lot of people say they just want more free time so they can watch television or movies, but those things are not activities that actually make us happy. They don't really fulfill us. Whereas flow activities are fulfilling just in the act of doing them themselves. Like that one thing that you did that day, if it's playing guitar for an hour, that gave you so much joy and fulfillment just in the activity of that. It's kind of a self reinforcing like experience just in itself. Whereas if you're just watching a program or a TV or something, you're in a passive state, mm. like being in information and it's not necessarily engaging. So I'm, I'm really into flow yeah, <laughs> activities. Yeah. So. yeah. I mean, I myself as well, like the, the flow, uh, kind of the, the reward you get from the flow is the flow itself. So to say, you don't have any extrinsic motivators or something. You, you don't want any specific results you're doing just for the sake of it. And, uh, you're intrinsically motivated and it's, it is like really on top of the world, so to say, where nothing else matters but, but the thing uh, that you're doing. It's funny, speaking is one of those for me too. Mm. And when I spoke in Helsinki, I remember um, I didn't know it was going to be such a huge audience. And I thought I was going to be speaking to maybe 30 or 40 people. And then I saw the day before in the stories and they were setting up the stage and I was like, Oh, there's a few more people there than I thought. I was closer to like three or 400 people. Like it was a huge stage and audience. And I always get a lot of nerves before I speak. And as soon as I step off stage, no matter what it is, if I'm speaking to 10 people or several hundred, I'm like, I dread it so much up until doing it because it takes so much energy and it's just very intense. But then after I'm like, that's all I want to do all day, every day, because like you said, it's just such a powerful activity and it's so purposeful and like just mm. an amazing reward in itself. Yeah. It gets you hooked. So to say it's like a positive addiction almost. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, uh, what made you start the keto diet? Uh, how did you, when did you begin? And uh, what, what sort of, you know, transitions have you gone through? 
So I started doing keto in 2014, and I first actually found it because I was experimenting with intermittent fasting, and I had read uh, this book you're probably familiar with called The Warrior Diet by Ori Hoffelmaker, and he has a great book, he has a great style of writing, and I read his book, which was, he was doing an OMAD practice, and he I'm really into stoicism and he has all these connections kind of back to stoicism and you know like life should be hard and there should be things in life that challenge us and life shouldn't just be this comfortable thing it should it's in the doing the things that are uncomfortable that are difficult that stretch us that are hard that we get all the rewards and so I remember I really liked his kind of stoic philosophy with the intermittent fasting but he, in his approach, he didn't incorporate keto or low carb, but he still had like whatever diet, you know, you do one meal a day OMAD, but it doesn't really matter what you eat. Although I know he's now talks a lot more about being vegetarian and that's kind of more his focus now, but I kind of wanted to hack his OMAD thing too and take it to the next level. So then I found you know, what are some of the strategies that I can use to incorporate? I had already gone sugar-free and gluten-free, and I started seeing, like, the keto stuff and researching, like I was saying, on these forums. And I was like, well, what if you combine this OMAD intermittent fasting thing with, like, low-carb or keto? And then when I started finding out about the feedback and the fact that you can test your blood sugar and your ketones, then I got really interested because I'm a data nerd. And there's so much data that you can just tap into literally, you know, at your fingertips. So that's kind of how I got pulled into more of the low carb keto thing and combining it. And, and it was also just through my personal journey with going off of gluten because I had a lot of severe abdominal pain when I had gluten. I still do now, even though it's been years, if I accidentally have gluten in my meals, I'll have, um, excruciating pain a couple of days later. So that's still there, but I'm able to, to not have flares most of the time because I, I do keto. Hmm. So it was a combination of factors and it's now been, yeah, about since 2014 now that I've been doing it. I've been in ketosis, I think the entire time, except for maybe a couple times when I've been doing some new experiment um, to see if something will kick me out of ketosis. Um, but I do it for, for a number of different things. I do it for optimal health. You know, it's, I'm optimizing for certain things in particular for me. Like you, we were talking about flow states, mental clarity is huge for me. I'm optimizing for sustained energy for not having to depend on cooking a meal every hour or two hours or getting a snack and mm. be preoccupied with food just being liberated from not only the thought of food, but the preparation, the acquiring of it. <laughs> There's so much yeah. that goes into it. It's, it's so time consuming. And I was just reading, you know, the Romans. Do you know how often Romans ate? Uh, yeah, I, I remember from like Ori Hoffmeckler's book that he said that they only ate like at dinner time or something. And they practiced some sort of fasting and uh, OMAD type of feeding. So yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how, how I'm, not, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but I would presume yeah that they didn't eat like three three square meals a day. <laughs> no, and I mean they would think that eating three meals a day 
is crazy. They did OMAD, you're absolutely right, one meal a day. But eating three meals plus snacks, I mean, they would probably look at us as like cattle, like we're just eating all day long or what I call grazing or nursing. It's like, you're just either, you always have something in your mouth, like especially in North America. And I was, I was like that. Like I always had a latte in my hand or some kind of snack where I was thinking about, you know, food. It was a huge preoccupation. I can't believe how much time, you know, went into that. But Romans were known, you know, in the upper echelons for being quite gluttonous and they only ate once a day. And I mean, to think how much more we could do with our time if we're not eating, you know, anywhere from three to sometimes six, eight, nine, seven times per day, you know, what else could you do with all that time that you're not acquiring, preparing and eating food? You know, it's, it's yeah. amazing how much. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, one, one of the, one of the researchers like Sachin Panda, they've done some uh, studies where, or like they've asked people of uh, how often do they eat? And they find that usually the people kind of start off their feeding cycle in the morning by adding a little bit of like milk into the coffee and they go about it throughout the day and they end with like even just a small snack in the evening so in in reality they're only fasting for maybe 10 hours a day and they're in this fed state you know the majority of the 24-hour period so they don't really experience this uh, facet physiology or or this mild ketosis even and they're constantly eating yeah that's 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 so true and and I, and I really liked the example from Ori Hoffmeckler's book as well, of uh, like eating constantly throughout the day is almost like enslaving, and uh, that's also one of the reasons why the the uh, the, the uh, Romans didn't feel or they didn't become like so domesticated by food, so to say. They did kind of eat only once a day, but uh, they they weren't as dependent of it as like the slaves or something. That's such a good analogy too, because so many people who go low carb or go keto say, I feel liberated mm. like, yeah. that I don't have to be so preoccupied with food. And if you are on that high carb, you know, blood sugar or high carb, low protein, or the way a lot of people eat high carb, low to no fat and low protein, you're just, you're not going to have any choice, but to think about food, because like you said, you're going to be in the absorptive state almost the entire waking time. Mm. And you're only going to get into that post-absorptive state very rarely, like when you're sleeping. And it, it doesn't start until four hours after having a meal. So, you know, if you have dinner at seven or you have a snack at 10 PM, I was just presenting on this in Mallorca, but say you had dinner and then a snack in the evening, you're not going to get in the post-absorptive state until maybe 2, 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. And then you'll be in it for more than like four or five hours. And so we all have this ability to access, you know, these different metabolic states. And yet most of us are trapped in this like purgatory of just being a sugar burner. And when you are that, you are enslaved to it. You are constantly thinking about how to, you know, get more food because you have these, you know, highs and crashes like we talk about so much so it, it is yeah it is incredibly freeing i think to not be asleep yeah. To sugar. yeah it's it's crazy to think about uh that uh, most let's say fitness uh, uh gurus they advise people to start eating uh, immediately in the morning and to have like some sort of a carb carb-based meal to 
quote unquote, like replenish your glycogen stores and to give your brain energy and such. Whereas uh, in reality, uh, the body would benefit much more by avoiding those things and going into like a deeper state of, uh, of ketosis and allowing these processes to occur naturally and allowing the body to produce its own energy without, you know, going for the easy, easy way out, so to say. That's actually what I'm realizing now more than ever, especially through my studies, is that the body is incredibly intelligent, incredibly intelligent. And yet we just do all these things that kind of take it off its path. And it, its dominant priority is homeostasis. And we don't really have to do that much. Like we just have to stop overfeeding it, putting poisons into it, just give it the right building blocks that it needs, which is not that much, you know, high quality protein for essential amino acids, essential fatty acids, and get out of the way. And it will just get you into homeostasis. It will, if you have a surplus accumulated stored energy, it will get rid of it. It'll burn it off. If you, you know, there's so many different things that it will correct hormones, signaling, communication, all these things. It just needs those building blocks. Like, please just give me these things that I need that I can't synthesize on my own. And then I will take them and, you know, we will just hum along so smoothly and so well. And most people and myself for so many years never got to experience just what great natural health is because I had taken my body so far from homeostasis. And I think that's what's so surprising for people is they try this stuff and they get great results so quickly because the body's like, yes, I'm finally getting what I need. I can take it from here. And it just, you get so many improvements so quickly because the body is so intelligent and it is, it just needs those building blocks to take care of all these different biochemical processes and it'll be good. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is like, uh, uh, even, you know, a lot of sayings go that, uh, the best physician uh, is your body itself or like uh, also like the example of fasting uh, that, that fasting is the physician within your own body so uh, it is true that uh, like uh, the body is so intelligent and uh, yeah uh, the healing process can occur itself it's just that most of the time the high amounts of carbs or high amounts of uh, or high high eating frequency tends to get in the way and uh, negate, negates those uh, effects in the first place uh, yeah yeah it is uh, but uh, what what would you what would you say is like the biggest differences between men and women who are doing keto uh, have you seen any uh, like huge differences it's funny i always kind of i probably don't know enough about it to be able to fully answer that question because i'm not a trained doctor or you know nutritionist or anything and i I'm just kind of doing my own like food blogging and, and sharing kind of my own biohacking journey. Mm -hmm. And I don't really see a ton of differences. And, you know, Megan Ramos, who's a fasting expert, and I were talking about this recently because she has so many people that are constantly like, oh, everything's so different for women. And like fasting is different for women and exercise is different for women. And yes, we are different physiologically. A lot of it comes down to differences in lean mass and muscle mass and certain little things like our hemoglobin like there's just there's various little differences i think when it comes to our actual physiology we're built in a lot of similar ways and i don't really see a ton of 
differences. I think to me, it's more, what's more important is what's your activity level like? How much do you exercise and work out and train your muscles? How much do you do strength bearing exercise? Like activity level is major. And to me, that and intake, those are the biggest differences, the biggest sort of levers. Like I don't really see a ton of differences between men and women and the responses that they get. They're very immediate. They're very um, powerful changes. When it happens when people say, oh, things are so different because of our hormones. Our hormones are hormones. What are hormones? Hormones are signaling components in our bodies. They signal communication. They transfer communication and information in our body. Do we have different ones? Yes, but we also have a lot of the same ones. And so a lot of people talk about hormones. When we get into low carbon keto and we're eating real food, our hormones are just able to communicate better. They're able to communicate faster. The signals, the speed at which signals are given off and received operate faster. But men and women were essentially not that different physiologically. So I think the biggest differences are really just your activity level. And men tend to do more weight-bearing exercises in general and have more lean mass. So I think that's like the, the biggest difference that I see when it comes to using biohacks and you know food and all of this stuff. I don't really see a ton of of things that need to be like approached differently or you know do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I I, I totally agree that uh um you know physiologically everyone can do intermittent fasting and everyone can do uh, keto diets and such and and the only differences would be uh, between some sort of uh, activity level and uh, lean muscle mass and also some genetics and some, something like that. Uh, but uh, I will also say that women may may have like a slightly more sensitive hormonal profile or something and they may negatively respond to uh, the adaptation period slightly differently than men. But at the same time, after adaptation, everything is going to be pro- basically the same in my opinion because... Uh, the body will get used to it, and uh, it's like once this shift occurs, then there's no, not going to be any difference, so to say. If you would, if you would say that, if you would say that uh, women are going to do worse on keto because of their uh, sensitive hormones or something, then you, you can also make the argument that they're going to do worse on like a regular diet. <laughs> you know, it's it doesn't make sense because uh, after after a while, the body will still you know, get used to the ketones and such. So yeah. At, they may have to kind of pay attention to some, uh, uh, let's say, not not over not overly stressing themselves out or something, and not uh, producing too much cortisol, because uh, a lot of the reasons why women tend to have like uh, some negative effects from from keto or fasting have to do like, with like uh, lowering their thyroid functioning or something, and that can be easily you know prevented, and it's not the keto. It's not the fasting itself is simply like the stress uh, that everyone is subject to and everyone is going to respond to the stress differently. Yeah, but I would say that men also have hormone. Of course, yeah. And also have to take it slowly and are also sensitive to it. I I don't see a ton of differences, but again, I'm not a doctor. A doctor would probably be able to answer the question better than I can, but overall... I just think that in terms of the effects of the diet, the most important differences really just come down to pregnancy 
and breastfeeding and needing more protein and more food overall during those times and more nutrients because mm-hmm. of what the body's doing. But otherwise, like I don't. Mm-hmm. I've actually I've actually heard also that uh, women are more more suitable for like a ketone based metabolism and uh, especially just because of the uh, aspect of uh, uh, be getting pregnant and uh, and uh, nourishing the child as well because you wouldn't be able to. Uh, kind of sustain pregnancy successfully in the long term if you were to be only burning glucose and carbohydrates. So uh, even like breast milk itself is like uh, made of primarily ketones and fats. So they're they're actually yeah, even even more suitable for it maybe than men. <laughs> Could be argued possibly. I'm pregnant. Maybe like let's talk about some of the misconceptions of the keto diet as well. Like what are what would be something uh, that may lead to some additional uh, negative results or not making progress with keto. What 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 have you found? It is like the most common um, misconceptions or mistakes. You know the the thing that gets me the most riled up right now is the biggest misconception about low carb and keto is that it's is something weird and different. And I I mentioned this on a couple of podcasts, but I was watching this Doctor Oz clip recently, and there was this football player on. I can't remember his name, and he was like. I'm going to show you guys a keto diet and they brought him over to this table and he had these like big plastic containers of green oil, like huge ones. And then next to it, he had this big vat of cashews. And I was like, I have never (laughs) eaten (laughs) that ever. I mean, I've had some cashews, I've had some cashew milk, but that's not a keto diet, you know? And I don't understand why, where the the weirdness of it comes from, because it's not that weird. Honestly, I really believe that low carbon keto is the way that we have been eating for millennia, for so much longer than how we've been eating high carb. It's really been a short amount of time since we started domesticating grains and making that a major part of the diet. So to me, it's like, it's the opposite of weird. It's just the most normal thing you can do is to eat single ingredient foods that don't come in a package, that don't have a barcode, that don't have nutritional facts on them because they're just real food. Mm-hmm. So I really think that's the biggest misconception about keto out there is it's like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this keto thing and like hit these you know weird macros yeah. and things. Actually, when you eat intuitively, a lot of people just eat in this way. Like when they're just eating intuitively, they eat, you know, an adequate amount of protein. They eat a good amount of healthy fats because that's what your body is craving is protein and fat most of the time. And if they're not addicted to carbs, they'll probably just eat enough carbs to fuel themselves. So it's, mm-hmm. that's the biggest one yeah. that I see. It's like uh, some people say, like, how can you just exclude entire food groups? Like, how can you not eat uh, starches or grains or legumes or something of that? Uh, Whereas in reality, it's 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 uh, it's like the the myth of a balanced diet is like uh, doesn't exist in nature. Like, it's not in nature. You wouldn't ever get like a well structured balance of all the macronutrients and all the food groups or whatever it is you would always get them like separately. You would either get like a bunch of carbs 
but uh, with little to no fat, or you would get uh, like uh, zero carb, low carb uh, with uh, more protein and more animal fats and such, you would never have like a balanced diet. And the balanced diet itself isn't like optimal. It may sound that uh, you would function better with all with all like a, some sort of a balanced structure in all the micronutrients and all the macronutrients, but in reality, like uh, it's not actually the case. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Is if you're just eating, if you're eating with, in line with nature, you'd just be getting one or two macros at a time. If you're getting meat, you'd be getting protein and fat. Uh, we rarely would come across berries, and you know, when we were in our hunter gatherer stages, but it wasn't really until we domesticated grains and we started. You know, the the story with sugar is really interesting, and I I talk about it in my book, but you know, sugar was this, this exotic spice that was so expensive at one time that only the elite could have it. Mm -hmm. And it has gone from that to being one of the most heavily subsidized foods in the world and one of the cheapest in the world. So it's really the opposite of what it started out as. And it has so shifted our consumption patterns when you think about it, it really should be just this exotic, expensive spice that you have once in a while as a treat. And it was just in these elite circles where people would add it to their tea and they would add it, you know, to have a, you know, special occasions and not something that's eaten every day in these pounds and pounds per year, because it's such a cheap, heavily subsidized energy source for people. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, overstimulating, so to say. It's it's really easy to overconsume it and addictive. <laughs> Very addictive. Yeah, uh, but uh, what about uh, you know uh, these uh, hyper palatability from even like friendly keto friendly foods? Like uh, you can obviously you can still you know gain weight on keto, and if you over overeat on fats, or if you have like uh, additional. Uh, these hyper hyper palatable foods. What do you think about that? So, do you mean like um, bars or? Yeah, things? like something like doing like some sort of a really changing the consistency and changing the texture of the food by putting it into a bar or making some donuts or or something something of like that. Yeah, humans are the only mammals that modify our foods to make them hyper palatable. You know, animals don't do that. They just eat meat as they catch it. And we add all these things to it to make it so hyperstimulating. There's actually a lot of foods, you know, like MSG, for example, one of the reasons it tastes so good and is so addictive is that it's a neuro excitatory factor. So it excites your neurons and it makes you, you know, feel good. And it's not normal that MSG should be added to all these things. And yet it is, and it is in so many of our packaged foods. Like if you look at any packaged food from any convenience store, it probably has MSG in it. It's just called hydrolyzed yeast or hydrolyzed protein, or it has a thousand different names. And it's the same thing with sugar. And I'm not sure if you know, but I personally quit sweeteners about a year and a half ago. Uh, when I first started on keto, I was doing a lot of what I call like carb replacement foods. So I was trying to 
trick myself into thinking that I was still eating all my favorite foods and high carb foods just by making keto versions of them. But over time, I've found that not only have I reset my palate, going off of sweeteners is the quickest way to do that. It's really hard for a week or two, and then everything you eat tastes sweet um, because you're no longer hypersensitized you know, to these, and you, you make new neural connections in your brain really quickly. But going off of sweeteners has been one of the best things for me. I've never been an advocate of any of the bars or supplements or anything because, again, it comes in a package and it has, you know, this nutritional information. It's been modified. It's been processed in different ways. And a lot of the packaged foods are still sweetened with like dates and all these kinds of things, even though they're natural or, I, you know, I used to eat a lot of sugar substitutes and things. And it just kept me very addicted personally to, to carbs and to all these foods. So I think it really depends on your goals. Like if you are someone who just really wants to be completely free when it comes to food and off of food addiction, it's really best to go off of all of those things. Um, if you don't really, if that's not one of your goals, like if you don't mind having, you know, carb replacement foods and you like them, then go for it. I don't honestly think I would have tried keto if I hadn't have had those things to help me make the transition. Like, I think they're really important, but then like my goals right now are optimal mental health, optimal body composition and lean mass, low body fat percentage, and just being really free from food. So, and, and thinking about food, I just want to give my body optimal nutrition. And then I want to be free the rest of the day to think about other things and be productive and not focus or think about food. So those are my personal goals. And I think if yours are similar to that, the best thing to do is avoid any kind of processed foods, even if they're low carb or keto sweeteners and things, and just build your plate around the essentials that your body needs every day, which are the essential amino acids, essential fatty acids. You know, I eat a ton of fish a ton of really high quality protein, eggs, all the most bioavailable proteins. And then I give my body as many supplemental micronutrients as possible. And then I just get on with life. And my body is just so happy <laughs> and mm -hmm. it, it functions so well and it functions so optimally and it really supports me in attaining all of those goals. So it depends on, on you and kind of what you're optimizing for and what you're wanting. Um, for some people, they need convenience foods. So I don't shame the companies that make those foods because they're really helpful for some people who are too busy to prepare meals for themselves or cook. I have the luxury to have the time to prepare dinner for myself. Some people don't even have that time. They have to go to a fast food restaurant and try and do that the best that they can there. So those companies are providing a service for people that need them, but I would be hesitant to eat a lot of packaged foods and modified processed foods, even if they're just called low carbon keto, because mm. it can hold a lot of people back from their goals. Yeah, 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 it is. And uh, even like, uh, let's say, keto friendly, low carb sweeteners uh, or artificial sweeteners like, you know, stevia or uh, sugar alcohols, although they're not, you know, gonna they're not going to cause like the same response as some, as as things like aspartame There's, they can still stimulate some of the cravings and they can still make the person want to 
uh, still get some sweetness and it's going to keep the sugar tooth alive. So the best way to gonna rid, rid yourself from those things is to yeah, go, go cold turkey and avoid them completely. So I, I agree with you there. Yeah, there is also the cephalic phase insulin response, which can release insulin just from tasting sweet things. So if you're really, if your goal really is to restore insulin sensitivity, then, you know, having like calorie free things that are, not, even if they're naturally sweetened, you'll get to your goals a lot faster without them. So yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, like your, your body is going to still release insulin if it feels like there is something energy rich and something uh, sweet in your mouth or in your in your bloodstream so just it's like an evolutionary precaution so to say that okay if there is usually if there is something sweet then usually it comes along with like a bunch of carbs and glucose so we better release insulin but with the artificial sweeteners there is no glucose uh, but uh, we're still going to release insulin because it might be so <laughs> it's not it's, it, it's it's not worth it to miss out on it yeah, it's hard to trick the body. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> like zero carb, full of fiber, you know, and people are like, oh, well, I can eat or drink this and I have no insulin response. I have no blood sugars or I have no blood sugar response. doesn't mean you're not having an insulin response. It doesn't mean that you're not being prevented from getting into the post-absorptive state where glucagon is dominant because glucagon can only dominate and you, you can only be in the post-absorptive state when you're doing all those great things, which you know are catabolic processes and breaking things down and rebuilding proteins and all these things, you can only get into that when insulin is low. You know, so if you're drinking sweeteners all day, even if you're fasted and you're drinking sweeteners all day, your insulin's still going to be stimulated and you will not be in the post-absorptive state, you know, to the same degree. So that's, yeah. that's yeah, yeah, it is like you, you don't really feel if your insulin is high, but you, you can feel if your blood sugar starts to rise, but you can't really feel that your insulin is rising. So that's true. Uh, yeah, and uh, and uh, that's also one of the reasons why I also like to follow like, more of like a minimalistic way of eating. Like I mentioned, getting getting the quality proteins, getting some uh, some quality micronutrients from vegetables and uh, some eggs and such. And those are actually all the all the stuff that you need. And you don't need to kind of have like a really wide variety of different food groups and different all the colors of the rainbow, so to say, you don't need those things and your body, <laughs> your body will function much better with like a more minimalistic way of eating. I like that. I, I love just minimalism in general and essentialism. That's why I, I called my cookbook keto essentials because, you know, we really stress ourselves out when we try to maximize everything all the time, like maximize the variety, maximize the colors, maximize, you know, all the inputs. Like if I get 10 vegetables in this salad, then I'm going to maximize my nutrients. That isn't always, the case, you know, so. Yeah. 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 And even, even when you look at the nutritional values of those vegetables, then in reality, there isn't much like uh, vegetables don't have as many nutrients as like uh, animal, animal foods like meats and organ meats and or fish even so yeah in most cases you don't you won't be gaining like a significant benefit if you do incorporate like a, diff, a bunch of different uh, plants and vegetables yeah i think that we've really shifted to a huge reliance on vegetables for micronutrients because fat was so demonized that actually when fat became so demonized, we started really reducing our protein and meat consumption a lot because 
you often can't find meat without having fat in it. You know, even mm. like people put egg whites and stuff, but even things as eggs, most protein has some fat in it. So we went to really relying on vegetables as like, this is the best way to get micronutrients. And now I love all this discussion and re-examining of, well, the first thing that I learned when I was in university, I took nutrition as my electives. One of the first things you learned is the absorption and bioavailability of micronutrients is so much higher in meat and animal products. And I was a vegetarian, hardcore vegetarian at the time. And I was like, great. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's not really useful information. But I now knowing, I just love all this discussion that we're happening. I love seeing people say like, beef is a superfood, you know, salmon is a superfood. And they are, they're so incredibly protein rich and nutrient rich as well. And we don't have to just rely on vegetables to mm. be healthy. Yeah. What, 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 what do you think about the carnivore diet then? Like uh, the only zero carb? I'm still forming an opinion on it. And I've been doing a lot of trialing with myself and sharing like little experiments, like how much protein can I eat to get kicked out of ketosis? And like, wow, I've been able to stay in ketosis this entire time because protein is not recognized as fuel for the body. It is a functional material. It's a functional molecule in the body, a biomolecule. So it's used for rebuilding our cell proteins. It's a precursor for almost every single protein um, molecule in the body that we need to perform functions like our our lipid membrane, they're part of our, our lipid membranes, they're part of almost every communication, our hormone signaling. A lot of our hormones actually need to be moved around the body using proteins. Like a lot of the composition of our blood is albumin. It's a protein that is just there as a carrier protein. It's an incredibly vital functional material. And so I find that one of the reasons people are getting and one of the best things that have come out of all this carnivore trialing and people testing it out, trying it, is that people are understanding that meat is such a powerful superfood that protein shouldn't be minimized. It should be prioritized because it is the most important functional material. Of all the essential macronutrients, protein has the essential amino acids. There's nine that we cannot make on our own. We need to get from our diet. We have some essential fatty acids as well, but protein is the biggest. And so people are feeling amazing, I think, because they've been restricting protein for so long. Like I was a vegetarian for 17 years and I really restricted protein for a long time. And I can feel my how well my body is responding to it. So I really think I'm still forming an opinion on it because we don't have long-term, you know, trials and evidence of, of what you know, the exclusion of all plant matter does. I don't think it's necessary for everyone to exclude all plant matter because there's still some great micronutrients in it. But I just think that it's controversial and it's making us think and talk about it because it's so controversial. Um, and it's making us re-examine some of our notions like around fiber. You know, I just did this great podcast with Dr. Paul Mason and he's had all these people who've had gastrointestinal distress for their entire lives like stories that are just 
horrifying that people have been dealing with. And all they've been told is to eat more fiber. And then they, he's done these, you know, trials where they cut out all the fiber and he's shown the data, like all of their pain, discomfort and things go away. So, you know, it's, it's really, really cool to be living in a time when all of these things that have been known kind of as nutritional dogma are being re-examined and, and looked at. And I think that there's a lot of good coming out of the carnivore trend because it is getting people to talk and think. Mm. But I don't know that it's what I say. It's like the healthiest diet in the world. I have no idea. Like we don't have no idea. Mm. Like we're yeah, it, it it does it does kind of bring uh, the conversation back into more of like a perspective, so to say that uh, that 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 the meat itself isn't. Uh, like uh, as dim as bad as it used to be in the past let's say like people in the in the 80s and the 90s they were demonizing the hell out of fat and uh, protein as well and meat and such so at the moment it's like forces people to look at it into more context dependent so to say meat or protein isn't gonna react the same way on a low-carb diet than it is gonna be on like this high processed food uh, standard american diet like even even in the example of insulin and glucagon, then uh, in that case also like protein is going to cause like a different metabolic reaction than if you were to eat, if you were to combine it with carbs or if you were to be eating with like in a low carb context. So yeah, it forces people to look at it. Okay, there's more more to the story than than just uh, than just uh, we think. I actually was tweeting um, at Dr. Georgia Eid this morning a chart that was in um, Protein Power by Michael Eads, and it shows the different combinations of macronutrients. And the one that spikes our insulin the most is actually the combination of high carb, low protein. Hmm. And if you look at most fast food, if you look at pizza, it's high carb, low protein. If you look at burgers and fries from all these fast food restaurants, it's all high carb, low protein. It has the biggest spike more than just eating just carbs on its own. There's something about that particular combination. Mm. And whereas eating just protein and fat on its own without carbs or any other combination, it doesn't have that severe of an effect. Um, and I, I like to bring her up because she's been hugely you know, knowledgeable in terms of going back and re-examining some of the biggest studies about red meat and cancer. And I think that that is the one that scares people the most is fear of cancer from eating too much red meat and eating too much protein. And then there's the cardiovascular risk, which we're now understanding, you know, the connection with fats, but she's done incredible work. And if you're curious on her website, she has all these extremely detailed articles going back and explaining why, why these correlations were made in these studies and why they might not necessarily be what they were once interpreted as and she's really contributed a lot to that discussion and to get people to you know maybe they don't have to fear eating red meat all the time you know mm -hmm. they don't have to be as afraid of it mm -hmm. yeah yeah it is true that uh, the 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 addition of carbs and insulin is, is gonna completely change the story so to say and uh, you can't you know really look at you you can't really you know put a stamp on red meat uh, that is going to give you cancer or diabetes or heart disease if the people who are 
you know, eating those red meats with other foods that are actually causing the issues, so to say, that is causing the inflammation and oxidative stress. So, yeah, like we mentioned, we don't have any real studies in the long term with uh, like low carb keto uh, type of the diets that exclude uh, the insulin and carbs. So yeah, it's a really, really an interesting uh, field for the next coming years for people to, you know, look into. Yeah, I think the coolest work is the work that's been done by Dr. Ben Beekman showing how high protein intake will spike insulin if someone is on a high carb diet. And it all comes back to the insulin to glucagon ratio. And I've been spending most of my time studying glucagon now because I find it fascinating. And we talk so much about insulin and we don't really talk about glucagon, which is actually insulin is the bad guy. Glucagon is the one that is you know, when we're in that fat burning state, when we're in a ketogenic state, glucagon is dominant. So if you want to be burning body fat as fuel, if you want to be burning ketones for fuel and generating ketones, you need to be in a glucagon dominant state most of the time, or a lot more often than most people are. And that's being in that post absorptive state, which happens after four hours of, you know, from consuming a meal. Um, And I just think it's, it's, there's so much interesting research coming out about our hormones, especially with regards to insulin, adrenaline, and glucagon, and exercise and fasted exercise, and how much, you know, exercise and fasted exercise trigger both adrenaline or epinephrine and glucagon. And those are the hormones that really get us in that fat burning ketogenic state the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, you mentioned that you're studying and uh, w- would you would you see yourself you know doing some sort of a study in the future yourself with with these uh, topics that we just talked about yeah actually my research project for that i'm doing for my biochemistry program right now is i'm investigating ketosis just as a metabolic state as opposed to a diet and that there are other ways to get into ketosis as a metabolic state for example high protein diet so that's the topic of my research project and i'm publishing hoping to do it's hoping hopefully will be published as like an online wiki just addressing how we actually can get into a ketogenic state on high protein diets as long as starches are controlled and that's what i was studying for myself in my n equals one and i think it's one of the reasons why people are getting such amazing benefits doing carnivore is because they're cutting out all the carbs and you do the same thing when you're fasted and you do the same thing when you're on a ketogenic diet you really control starches and i would argue that most of the benefits coming from carnivore are total control of starches and increase in iron Mm. and the more you study biochemistry the more you realize how important iron is to oxygenating our cells And, you know, we engage in oxidation all day long. And so much of it, we need iron in order to carry that oxygen to our cells. And that's what our heart is doing all day long is, you know, pumping all this blood through our bodies and it needs to be oxygenated. We need oxygen. We need iron. And I think so many people complain about being low energy, like anemia is almost like everyone's just lethargic, tired all the time. And I think that it's that iron that we get from bioavailable. The bioavailable iron that we get from red meat, it really contributes to people feeling 
more energized and having more iron, higher iron levels and, and hemoglobin in the body that can carry all this oxygen. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it is true that, you know, people tend to eat uh, somewhat or like, like the standard diet is somewhat low in meat and somewhat uh, low in protein. And uh, that's cause that can cause like some of the deficiencies in iron. You know, I just think that for the most part, we know that a lot of people are eating very little percentage of protein in their diet. I think 10 to 15% for most people. And that's a standard, you know, mm. recommended diet for the general population in the Western mm. world. And that, you know, I don't think that iron supplements can do the same thing. They might be able to, maybe you could do a study on that and, and test it out. But I really think that it's, it's one of the main, the two main reasons why people feel so amazing trying higher protein, trying carnivores, just iron and no starches. You know, it's the two factors that you can replicate. Maybe if you just did a lot of intermittent fasting and you took a lot of high potency iron or something, I, I don't know. I'd have to be, a, but it's so interesting that to research these concepts more because the more that I study, I'm astonished at how little we still know about all these things. Like even, you know, these are textbooks that many doctors study physiology, anatomy, you know, biochemistry. And they're like, well, we think that this might do this, but we don't know, you know? And I, here I was thinking like, we had it all figured out and, and we don't. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is like the, the more you learn that, then you realize that you, there's so much more to learn. Uh, we don't know that much. <laughs> Uh, but uh, what, are, what are you doing right now in terms of diet then uh, what kind of foods and uh, if you happen to know like the macros or something then what's your, what's your diet right now? Yeah, so I've still been doing high protein and I've been in ketosis the entire time. Uh, since I started doing a higher protein diet it was in the spring and so my protein now is like before it was very traditionally ketogenic diet like 15% to 20% and that was doing like really high fat. And now my intake is closer to anywhere like 60% protein. Wow. And I'm still able to maintain ketosis because my starches are very, very low, close to zero. And because of that, I'm able to tap into my own body fat stores. I'm able to utilize the fat that I'm taking in, which I've moderated somewhat as well. So I before was doing really high fat and now it's more a moderated intake because when you are fat adapted, you know, 77% of our body's total energy pool is fat. It's stored fatty acids that we have on our body. And so even in a lean person, there's still a tremendous amount of energy stored on that person because it's the most efficient form of fuel storage in the body, whereas glycogen has to be bound to water and it's very, very heavy. Hmm. Uh, and it, it makes up only 1%. Stored glycogen, stored sugars make up only 1% of our total energy pool. So we can actually tap into a lot of our stored energy and be in ketosis very easily, even when doing a high protein diet, but it's different for every person. So I'm very insulin sensitive now from doing this kind of lifestyle for many years. Uh, if someone is diabetic, they might be really sensitive to higher levels of protein. Hmm. If someone is doing for just the therapeutic aspects or for treatment of epilepsy they probably can't 
do mm -hmm. higher protein, you have to stick to that really, really minimal moderated amount of protein. But I think it's just really cool to, for everyone to try different things. And like, just cause you think you might have found the optimal diet for yourself, doesn't mean that you found it. Like maybe there's something else you can try and tweak and you can find out for yourself because we have so much ability to test ourselves, to test different levels of things, get, getting our blood work done. You can go to the doctor and lab and have anything tested. And, you know, we have these at home devices to test our blood sugar, test our ketones. Like it's, it's amazing. And I think it's really cool to always be tweaking. And I think I'm a biohacker. So I'm, I don't know if I'll ever be satisfied with one way, you know, hopefully I feel like I found what's pretty optimal for me. Mm -hmm. you know, for how, now, how many, how many grams, how many grams of protein does it actually like look like for your body weight? Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't imagine. Like I do 0.8 to one oh, okay. grams of protein, um, per pound of body weight. So it varies on the day, but also there are days when, so my intake is usually between 60 grams up to a hundred. Mm. Sometimes I'll have days where I'm have like 125, 130 grams of protein just cause that's what I'm craving that day. But the biggest shift for me in addition to that has just been really intuitive eating. Like mm. I don't think I've experienced that since I was a little kid. And now I've, I had my, all this appetite, signaling everything distorted from such a young age being on a high carb diet and i had a lot of food addiction for so many years and now i'm just eating when i'm hungry and i get full really fast because my plate is based around the essentials that my body needs and then i just find that my satiety my satiety is very very high so i really just eat when i'm hungry and i mm. i really listen to that and I used to hear people say that and I was like, how do you do that? Like, tell me how you do that. I don't understand what that means. Like you can just eat when you you're intuitively hungry and you can just stop when you're full. Like I didn't, it was like goals, you know, I didn't understand that you could get to that. Um, so that's kind of more now I'm eating more intuitively and then I'm tracking after and then I'm looking like, oh, this this is like kind of where my macros are right now. Right. Because you can be on a high fat diet at all times, as long as your starches are very controlled because your body is has so much stored fat on it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is like you don't you don't necessarily have to be quantifying everything and measuring all the macros and such, uh, especially if you're doing like fasting and such, because you will be more uh like uh you have a bigger buffer zone for all the all the other micronutrients and you you can get away with it uh, more easily and not having to worry about it so to say for in, in the long term and also like the percentages themselves are like quite arbitrary so to say that they they vary they, they vary all the time from day to day and they're never the same i think it's a good place to start if you've been on high carb for a long time to, to understand what that means. What does, you know, are you eating two, 300 grams of carb per day and you don't realize it? And that's one of the things I, I talk to people the most. I'll be like, what's your diet like now? Is it high carb? And they're like, I don't know. What is high carb? You know, and, and so it's just really the basics. Like, are you having, how many grams per day are you having? And just kind of knowing that. And maybe two, 
150 to 300 grams of carb per day is a lot. And maybe you don't necessarily need to do keto if you want to optimize your health, but you could bring it down a little so it's a little bit more balanced or you're getting more energy from healthy fats or just knowing what that is. I think it's a really great place to start. I think everyone should understand what calories are, what the different macronutrients are, what the most essential ones are. And when you're starting out, it's really important and helpful to have those percentages so you can like start to make the connections between what's on your plate and like what you're actually taking in. But over time, like you, if you can get to a more intuitive place, um, then that's like an awesome place to be. Um, what is your diet like these days? Mm, I, at the moment, yeah, I'm doing also like a very minimalistic way of eating with primarily uh, some meats, fish, eggs, and vegetables, and uh, like additional some healthy fats as well. I, I may tend to kind of also have like slightly higher protein than on the standard keto, uh, but uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I, I usually maybe stick to between 0 0.8 and one, 1 gram per pound of body weight uh, and mm -hmm. such. So like, it's not like high protein in a sense, but it's still higher than like a regular keto diet. And I'm not, folk, and I'm not like uh, trying to add a bunch of extra fat if there's no necessary need for it, so to say. And, uh, that I, I simply focus on getting like fattier chunks of protein and getting my fats from that, so to say, than uh, keeping it in like a whole food uh, context. So that it, it is like a maybe low carb, uh, low carb whole food diet with uh, animal animal products. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because it's when you make protein a priority, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a high protein diet. But it's higher maybe yeah. than like a traditional keto diet, which is 15%, which is very low. Um, and it's the same with high fat, like getting 30 to 40% of your macros from fat is still high fat. It's still mm, yeah. a lot of fat to be eating on a daily basis. Um, it's just maybe not as like high in fat as like 80%, 75%. Yeah. Um, I think, again, it really helps people when they're first transitioning from being a sugar burner to a fat burner it helps your body get into that fat burning mode it helps your body make lipases which are the fat digesting enzymes like it, it helps get you in that state it helps you get you off the sugar roller coaster of being on high carb but over time um you might want to try different things and biohack yourself and find you know what works best for you and there's so many different approaches and we have all this data you know the most important data being like, how good do you feel? Like, are you happy? Do you feel good in your body? Like, is your mind at, you know, calm? Do you feel like your heart is like happy and full and, mm. and you know, at rest? Like there's so many of these components, like that's why we're doing all of this for and trying different things and, and testing them out. I think it's, a, it's just, everyone should be a little bit of a biohacker, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is true. And uh, it's always like a constant experiment uh, with yourself and uh, with, uh, with the diet. So yeah, Vanessa, it's been really uh, great talking with you. And uh, before I ask you like uh, my last question, then it will be, uh, where can people uh, learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so I have, uh, my favorite thing is my podcast. It's called Fast Keto. 
and it's because I love fasting and keto together and doing things quickly. And you can find it on most, you know, various platforms for podcasts. And then my most active social media is on Instagram, Ketogenic Girl. And uh, you can also find my pages on Facebook, The Ketogenic Girl. Uh, those are probably the most active places. And I started tweeting again. Um, I'm using that more now as well. So mm. I think it's is, is, it, is it like a ketogenic girl or is it Vanessa Spina or what's the tags? Ketogenic girl. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, uh, and my last question is going to be, uh, what's this uh, one piece of advice or a habit that you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? I think the biggest thing is probably it's kind of a combination, but it's going off of sweeteners and taking in more protein because I was someone who dealt with a lot of cravings for a long time. And what I realized, and it was a huge help for me was Dr. Ted Naiman talking about how, you know, people who are experiencing cravings a lot of times, it's actually from a lack of protein and the two can kind of feed into each other in a way. So I think that if I had, the most beneficial thing has been quitting sweeteners and not having them at all. And that reset my palate to the point that everything tastes sweet to me now, which is awesome. And I, it helped me get off that like food kind of roller coaster and, and addiction. And then also just eating more protein because it, the more protein I've had in my diet, the more, the less I have those cravings because my body is getting what it needs. And so prioritizing protein and quitting sweeteners are probably the two most powerful hacks of dietary life I found. Yeah, like they, they are somewhat of, uh, you know, both, both keto and fasting and quitting sweeteners, they, they are like giving you more freedom, so to say, uh, the freedom to uh, not only do what you want, but also like lose, lose, uh, lose a lot of the attachments that, uh, that tend to hold you back, so to say. And after that, everything uh, gets, gets a lot better. So yeah, uh, it's a good, good advice. Thank you. Thanks so yeah. much for having me. Yeah. Like it's been great talking with you and, uh, hopefully we'll see you in the future again, maybe in some sort of another uh, conference or, uh, or an event. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. Thank you so much, Sam. Yeah. I'll see you around. That's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Power podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on the iTunes or the other social media platforms. Definitely check out the show notes for the topics that we discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.